You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. And as you're doing that, if you'd please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. As you're doing that, we're going to dismiss our middle school class. Middle school class meets on Sunday mornings down here uh, after worship down the stairs over there. So middle schoolers, you're dismissed. Last Sunday, we began our new series in the book of Exodus, which is titled Be Set Free. And uh, if any of you need a Bible to follow along with us, go ahead and uh, just raise your hand in the air. We'll make sure that one of our ushers gets you a Bible so you can read along with us. Also, those of you who prefer to read the Bible on your phone, uh, we encourage you to use the YouVersion Bible app. We have live notes in there where you can follow along. You can take your own notes along with our notes. You can see all the verses that we're reading. Everything that's on the screen and more is in that app. So we encourage you to go on there and go to the live section. Click on our church's name and you'll see the notes up there. You know, one of the best ways to understand a doctrine, a given doctrine, is to see it in action. And there's almost no better way to understand, to get a picture of what salvation means, what salvation looks like, than to come to the book of Exodus, where God is revealed as the one who sets free, the one who leads us out from bondage into freedom. And that's what we're studying here in this book, in this new study, and it is what God wants to do in our lives as well. So let's read some of our texts today together as we begin. Exodus chapter 2, and we'll read from verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, and he hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why did you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid, and he thought, Surely this thing is known in the sight of the people. And the people uh, believed, and when they had, or sorry, I went too far. He said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who sees, you are a God who hears, you are a God who knows. Thank you, Lord, that as we come into this place this morning, you see us, you know us, you hear our prayers, you know the things that are going on in our lives. And Lord, we ask that you would work in our lives, Lord, that you would work in our lives like you did in the lives of the people of Israel at that time, set them free from bondage. Lord, would you do the same thing in our lives? Would you set us free and lead us into true freedom in you? We pray that you would use this study and these words, Lord, let them sink into our hearts and let them truly produce good fruit in our lives for your glory and for our good. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's an interesting thing to think about. How did you become the person who you are today? There were probably several factors involved, including many factors which were completely outside of your control. 
There was a family you were born into, the community that you were raised in, the people and opportunities who came into your life. Much of what makes you who you are are things which you didn't have any control over. But then at the, on the other hand, none of us can truly say uh, that we are self-made people. But on the other hand, right, there's a big part of what makes us who we are is not just the cards that were dealt, but how we use those cards, right? It's not just the circumstances you face in life, but how you react, how you respond to those circumstances that shapes who you will become. Today, as we begin to look at the life of Moses, we see one of the greatest figures in all of the Bible. We see a person who knew God and a person who was greatly used by God. And the question is, as we look at this, how did Moses become Moses, right? Like, how did he become, what, were, what factors were involved in his life that helped him to become the person that he became in God, the person who God intended him and called him to be? And here's why this question is important. Because God has a plan for you. God has a plan for your life. He wants to take you from where you are today, and he wants to take you to where he wants you to be. You know, the word exodus, it means departure, an exodus is really a journey, it's a departure from where you are now to where you will be. It's going to a new place where God is going to lead you. So God wants to lead you, in this sense, on an exodus, a journey personally from where you are now to where he wants to take you. The title of today's message is The Making of a Person of God. And here's what we're going to see in this chapter. Four things. First of all, we see the perfect setup. Secondly, we see somebody blowing it. That's Moses. And thirdly, we see feeling the ache. And fourthly, we're going to talk about God's redeeming work. Moses' life begins with the perfect setup. Last week in chapter 1, we saw the setting for this story of salvation. The people of Israel were living in Egypt. They had been there for a couple hundred years at this point. They had originally come to Egypt to escape a famine. And they stayed in Egypt because life there was pretty good. I mean, they were given some good fertile land to farm on and to live on. They were on good terms with the Egyptians. They lived side by side, coexisted. Uh, but now things have changed. Some time has passed and there's a new leader in Egypt. And he feels threatened by this rising population of Hebrew people living within the borders of Egypt. He considers them a threat to Egypt's national security. And so he, what he did to deal with this, he sent Egyptian troops into Hebrew villages to take Hebrew people captive. They, with chains and ropes, they tied them up. They dragged them from their homes. They forced them into slavery and hard labor. And to make matters worse, in another effort to slow down the birth rate of the Hebrews and weaken their nation, Pharaoh gave a decree that all baby boys born to the Hebrews were to be killed at birth. So these are very difficult and dark times. But yet, in the midst of these dark and difficult times, here's what we read in the first couple verses of this chapter. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took him and made for him a basket of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the, ch the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. In verses 1 through 10, the opening verse of this chapter, here's what we see. We see that in spite of how bad the situation was in Israel at this time, it all turned out to be the perfect setup for what was going to happen, the perfect setup for the Savior of Israel to come, for Moses to become that person. In fact, the very things which led which, which Pharaoh intended, the very things which Pharaoh intended to destroy the people of Israel, God is now going to use to save the people of Israel. 
And, and so let's think about this. What did Moses have going for him that created the perfect setup for him to become the deliverer of Israel? Well, the first thing he had going for him is this. Moses had believing parents. Moses' parents, we read here, they were Levites, but we know later on uh, that they were people of faith. Their names, we learn in chapter 6, were Amram and Jochebed. And what we know about them, again, is that they were full of faith in God. And let me just say this. Parents, one of the very best gifts that you could ever give your children is for them to be brought up in a home with believing parents. You know, most parents, of course, we want to provide the best things for our children. We want to provide them with a good home environment. We want to provide them with good opportunities for socialization. We want to provide them with a good education so they can have opportunities in the future. But in all of that, Please don't miss this. Don't miss this, that one of the very best things that you can give your child for their future is for you to be a mom or a dad who walks with God and who teaches them to love God and to trust in God. I encourage you to make that part of your daily life at home, your daily routine at home, that whatever, whenever any issue comes up, that you pray with your kids about it, not just for them, but pray with them. Teach them to love Jesus. Teach them to love his church. Teach them through the way that you respond to challenges that come your way. Teach them to trust in God and turn to God when they face challenges. Let them see you reading your Bible. Let them see you praying. Different research groups have studied the effects of a parent's faith as well as a parent's involvement in a local church and the impact that that has on their kids and on their kids' faith when they grow up. Uh, Baptist Press and the Promise Keepers organization did some research that I found, and here's some statistics for you. If mom and dad are both believers and both involved in a local church, there is a 72% likelihood that their kids will follow in their parents' faith when they grow up. If only dad is involved in local church and not mom, then that number drops to 55%, but you're still over half, right? But if it's only mom who's a believer and plugged into church, and dad's not involved, the number drops to 15%. So dads, you can see, you have a huge impact on your kids. And lastly, if, a, if neither parent is a believer, statistically, only 5% of kids will come to faith as adults. Now that's according to their research, and these are just statistics, nothing set in stone. But what they do reveal is something very important, and that's this, that when parents take their faith seriously, it has a major impact on their kids later in life. Parents who are teaching their kids by example what it means to know God and walk with God, that's one of the greatest gifts that you could ever give your children. Now, how do we know that Moses' parents were particularly people of faith, that they were, you know, more so than just the average Israelite? Well, here's how we know. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, we're told that it wasn't just natural parental instinct which caused Moses' parents to do what they did and disobey the law and keep Moses alive. No, he says this was a bold act of faith in God. It was because of their faith in God and this conviction as they looked on their child that this was someone special, someone who God had a calling on his life. This caused them to disobey the law and keep Moses alive. And parents, let me encourage you in this too. I encourage you to ask God to give you vision for your children. Ask God to help you to see your kids with his eyes for who they are and who he desires for them to become. You know, but the thing about babies is uh, that they don't stay small for very long. They don't stay quiet for very long. So when this baby was three months old, his mom knew that she couldn't continue hiding this baby forever. And think about this. If she gets caught with the baby, then the baby's going to be killed anyway. 
They're, and not only that, but they're going to suffer punishment as well as the mom and dad. And, and we know that Amram and Jochebed, they had two other children at least. We're going to meet them later on as we go through Exodus. Their names are Miriam and Aaron. And so if they get caught with this baby, then not only is the baby going to die anyway, but they themselves are not going to be around to parent their other two kids. And you can imagine what a difficult decision, what a tough spot this put them in. Do they try and help their baby and keep their baby alive? Or do they think about their older two children? And what are they going to do for them if they get hauled off or arrested? So they decide to do something which really was an incredible step of faith, an incredible act of faith. They take this basket, they cover it with tar in order to make it waterproof, and they put the baby inside the basket and they place him on the water in the river. Now, moms and dads, you've probably heard this story before, but I want you to try and imagine it in terms of this is something that really happened to them. What if this really happened to you? Talk about entrusting your child completely to God. That's what you would have to do. All they could do is pray as they let go of their baby to, to watch over this child, that God would watch over this baby and that God would guide the river, guide the currents of this river and guide this basket, protect this baby from wild animals and crocodiles and, and let him be discovered by only the right people. See, all of us ha- who have kids, we're going to have to do that at some point. Maybe you've already had to do that. When that day comes, when your kids leave the house and you have to entrust them to God and you have to ask God to watch over them, you have to let, let them go. You know, the first part of this perfect setup, though, that Moses had, that was a perfect setup for him to become the perfect deliverer of Israel, is this. He had believing parents. And moms and dads, this is one of the best things you can do for your kids. Walk with God yourself and teach your kids to embrace the gospel and to walk with God, too. So what happened? Let's read in verses 5 and 6. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman or women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and she sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying and she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So here's the second thing that Moses has going for him. Uh, that's the perfect setup for him to become the deliverer of Israel. He's found by Pharaoh's daughter. Of all the people in the world, this is the very best person he could have possibly been discovered by. If he had been found by an Egyptian, they probably would have turned him over to the authorities and he would have been killed. If he would have been found by a Hebrew, a Hebrew would not have been able to help him. Only the daughter of Pharaoh would be the one who had the power, the influence upon her dad to get him to make an exception for this little Hebrew baby boy who she found in the river. So we can see very clearly the hand of God working in all of these little details, all of these things which had to go just exactly right in order for this to work. It's creating the perfect setup for Moses to become the Savior of Israel. It says that we read in verse 4 that Moses' sister, probably Miriam, we read about her later on, She had gone down to the river to watch and find out what happened to Moses. And we read now in verse 7. Here's what it says about his sister. His sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call for you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Okay, so here's the third thing that Moses has going for him, which perfectly sets him up to be the deliverer of Israel. He's raised in Pharaoh's household, but yet he always knows that he is a Hebrew. 
See, Moses became the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was adopted by her, but he had full rights as a son, which means that he was now part of the royal family. Ancient historian Josephus, he tells us that this daughter, this particular Pharaoh, had only one child, and it was this daughter who took in Moses, and Moses was her only son. And so what that means is that Moses is in line, if not the next in line, to become Pharaoh and king of Egypt. Now, Pharaoh's plan, of course, had been what? To kill the Hebrews. But now, look at the irony of this. Because of his very plan, now not only does he have a Hebrew growing up in his own house, but he's paying for his education, right? And not only that, but he is heir to the throne of Egypt. Even more interesting, Moses' mom, as she let go of her little boy, now she gets him back. Look at this. Now she still gets to be involved in his life and in his upbringing. Moses, as a baby of three months old, would have still been nursing. And at that time, he didn't have baby formula that you could buy at the grocery store. And so the best solution in this case, I mean, Mo- Pharaoh's daughter can't nurse this baby. And so the best solution is go get one of those Hebrew women, the ones who've been giving up their babies. They've got milk, and so they can nurse this baby. And so what does the sister do? She says, oh, I happen to know a Hebrew woman who might be able to nurse that baby for you, brings the mom, reunites these two. Not only does uh, Moses' mother get to nurse her baby and hold her baby and be part of his life, she even gets paid for it. How about that? You know, it's common in ancient cultures, still common in many non-Western cultures today, for mothers to nurse their children until three, four, five years of age. Uh, I remember when we, you know, my wife and I used to serve in the refugee camp and we'd see, you know, people from uh, Central Asia and stuff like that. And we'd be like, whoa, that's a very old child still nursing, right? But uh, Moses, you know, you can imagine this probably wasn't for, uh, you know, he's, he's probably at this point that his mother's still involved in his life, probably three, four, five years old. He's going to know his mom. He's going to know that he is a Hebrew. So even though he grows up as a prince of Egypt, he knows that he's a Hebrew by birth. He knows that he's been adopted. But see, growing up as an Egyptian prince would have given him huge benefits in his life. In Acts chapter 7, we read some more about Moses, and here's what it tells us in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and in deeds. Moses would have been trained as a military leader because that's what they did with princes in those days. And there are actually historical reports that Moses, as a young man, led the armies of Egypt into battle against the Ethiopians, and he was victorious. He was successful. See, this is a perfect setup for Moses to become the liberator of the Hebrew people. Isn't this incredible? You can just see the hand of God orchestrating all of these little details and events and knowing, you know, here, I'm going to take this guy, I'm going to subvert all all of Pharaoh's plans, and I'm going to use Pharaoh's plans against him to create the perfect setup for a liberator. And do you know what Moses did with this perfect setup for him to become the savior of Israel? He blew it. He totally blew it. He wrecked it. And that brings us to our next section, which is blowing it. Starting in verse 11, where we read to begin the service, we now fast forward a few decades. Moses is no longer a baby. In fact, Acts chapter 7 tells us that when this happened, Moses was 40 years old. He's a grown man. One day, we read in verse 11, Moses went out. And that word went out, we know from, from what happened in Moses' life. We read in Hebrews 11 that and Moses basically burned his bridges with the Egyptians. He said, I am not 
the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I am a Hebrew. He burned his bridges and he went out to the Hebrew people to live amongst them. So one day as he goes out amongst these people, it says that he looked upon the burdens of his people. And that word where it says he looked upon, it's an interesting word because it doesn't mean that he just clinically took a look. Okay, well, there's what happened. There's a Hebrew guy. He's a slave. Wow, that looks really heavy, what he's carrying, right? No, it says when he looked on it, this is a kind of looking, uh, looking with emotion. He, it evoked emotion in him to see his people burdened and oppressed and enslaved. He was moved with emotion as he looked upon his people because he knew that he was one of them, that these were his people. In Hebrews chapter 11, again, it tells us that something was happening in Moses' heart at this time. During this time, Moses deliberately decided to identify with the oppressed people of Israel rather than with his Egyptian prestige. This is what we read in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses had everything going for him in Egypt. He had wealth, he had success, he had power, but yet he gave all of it up. He said, no, that's not who I am. I belong to God. I am connected to God by a covenant that he made with my people. I am connected to the people of God. That's who I am. Moses surely would have known enough about the Hebrew people growing up to know about their God and to know about the promises of God to their nation. They they were a chosen people that God had chosen to work through them and God had promised to bring a savior and a deliverer into the world who would save the people from the curse of sin and death. And so Moses makes this conscious decision that he's going to take up the cause of the Hebrew people. He's going to put an end to this oppression. He's going to be the one. God, here I am. Use me. I'll go. I'll go set them free and probably Moses is thinking it to himself at this time he says look everything in my life look everything has been building up to this moment everything in my life has been preparing me for this this is my God-given destiny and I'm gonna do it even if it means giving up everything I have in Egypt that's okay as long as I can fill my destiny given to me by God to set my people free And so Moses goes out to the Hebrews and he sees one day an Egyptian man beating a Hebrew slave. And it says that he looked this way and he looked that way. And seeing no one, he struck the man and he killed him and he buried his body in the sand. Now you can be sure of this. Moses knew that what he was doing was wrong. You know why? Because it says before he did it, he looked this way and he looked that way, right? You know how all the best jokes begin? Like this. You're looking this way, you're looking that way, you're making sure the coast is clear. Or maybe those are actually the worst jokes that begin that way. The point is this, if you're looking this way and that way, it means that you know that what you're doing is not right, that you've got a problem in your conscience. But then, so if Moses knew that this was wrong, then why did he do it? It tells us in Acts chapter 7 that here's what was going through Moses' mind when he did this at this moment. It says uh, in verse 23 of Acts chapter 7, Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Moses thought that because of his education, because of his royal background, because of his success as a military leader, that the Hebrews would see him taking up their cause and they would immediately embrace him. They would rally around him and accept him as their savior, but that's not what happened at all. 
The very next day, Moses goes out. He sees two Hebrew men fighting with each other. One had clearly wronged the other. And Moses intervenes and says, no, 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 you can't do this. And he got a very unexpected reaction. They said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Basically, they said, who made you the boss around here? What are you, you going to waltz in here and act like you're in charge? What are you going to do? You're going to kill me like you killed that guy yesterday? We all saw that, Moses. We all know what you did. See, rather than, rather than accepting Moses, they rejected him. He seemed perfectly prepared to lead the people of Israel out of slavery, but yet they rejected him. They didn't want him, in part because of what he had done the previous day in killing an Egyptian. They looked at him and they said, you're a murderer, man. You, you think we didn't see what you did yesterday? We all know about it. You think we're going to follow you? We're God-fearing people, Moses. We don't go around sneaking up on people and killing them. And now you want to come around here and you want to preach to us about what's right and wrong? You just murdered somebody. Get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. In fact, we're going to report you to the authorities. You see, this was the exact opposite reaction than what Moses expected. And now he's in a very tough spot, right? Because he can't go back to the Egyptians. He burned all his bridges with the Egyptians. And now the Hebrew people don't want him. So he's got nobody. He's got nowhere to go. Smooth move, Moses. You just ruined everything. You had a golden opportunity served up to you on a silver platter. And what did you do? You threw it all away. You blew it. And now here's Moses fleeing for his life rejected, alone, a fugitive from the law. And you can be sure at this very moment, Moses was feeling mighty crummy. He knew that he had messed up. He knew he had blown it. And so Moses goes off into the wilderness, fleeing for his life. And I wonder at this time, in fact, I'm almost sure that Moses felt at this moment like he had ruined God's plan for his life. Have you ever felt that way? That maybe God had a plan for your life. God gave you something great, and you just royally messed it up. You ruined it. You threw it all away. Maybe God gave you a great relationship. Maybe a great marriage. Maybe it was a job or a ministry or an opportunity. It was something great that God handed to you. Here you go. And you took it and you just threw it away. You ruined it by your own actions. Maybe you can relate to Moses. This must have been an incredibly low point in his life. Many of you probably know that. You can remember the low point in your own life. He must have been sure at this moment that God was, was finished with him. That he, God had given him a chance and he had blown it. That now God surely is fed up with him and finished with him after what he's just done. But here's what turns out. Turns out that God wasn't finished with Moses at all. And here in the desert, God is actually going to work mightily in Moses' life. He's going to make him into a man of God. God is going to take this time in the desert and God is going to shape Moses into a man that he intends for him to be in order to lead his people and do this work. God is going to teach Moses something in the desert that Moses could never have learned in the schools of Egypt. You know what that is? It's humility. Interestingly, in the book of Numbers, we're told that humility is the one thing which made Moses a great man and a great leader. He says that it was humility. That's what set Moses apart from other people. The one thing that sets him apart, where did he learn it? He certainly didn't learn it in Egypt. I'm sorry, yeah, he didn't learn it in Egypt. He learned it in the wilderness. Furthermore, it's here in the desert that Moses is going to have an encounter with God. That's what we're going to read about next week. So despite how Moses must have felt, God was not done with him. 
And I wonder if there's any of you here today who you need to hear that, that God is not finished with you. Maybe you've messed up. Maybe you've sinned. Maybe you've made huge mistakes. But you need to know this, that God is too big. God is too great. His plans are too big for you or me to mess them up by our mistakes. Do you know that? That God is so great and his plans are so big that they're not just going to be messed up by you and me and our mistakes. Look at Moses. If God wasn't done with him, then certainly God isn't done with you. And it's often in the dry, desert places of our lives that God does his most profound work in us. So the third thing we see, the third factor in this story is feeling the ache. Moses, he goes, he flees into the desert to the land of Midian. Midian is to the south and the east of Egypt. This is an area which borders the Red Sea. But interestingly, it borders the Red Sea on both sides of the sea. So in, in modern day southern Egypt and in modern day western Saudi Arabia, right on the Arabian Peninsula. This was a desolate region inhabited by a nomadic Bedouin type of people. They raised goats and sheep in the desert. We read in verse 16 that Moses one day, he's sitting by a well wondering, what is going to happen to me? What is going to become of me? When these girls walk up, they're the daughters of a certain priest of Midian, and they come up to draw water. But as they're coming up to the well, it says here in our text, there were some rough characters, some rough guys who came around and started giving them some trouble. So Moses stood up, and he shooed these guys away. He protected the girls. And when the girls returned home, they told their father what Moses had done, and their father invited Moses to come and live with them. And then it says in verse 21 that Moses ended up marrying one of these girls, one of the daughters. Her name was Zipporah. And they had a son. And Moses named his son Gershon. What does Gershon mean? It means foreigner. It means stranger. Because he said, I am a foreigner. I am a stranger in a foreign land. So we read that Moses there in verse 21, it says that he was, or in verse 22, it says that he was content to live with the man. It seems that Moses had resigned himself by this point to accepting, this is my life now. This is what my life is going to be from here on out. And we know that it was actually for about 40 years he lived with this family in the desert raising goats and sheep. And you know, I mean, he learned to live with it. It wasn't all that bad, right? He knew, he knew that he would never go back to the palaces of Egypt ever again. And it seemed that he had given up his hope on ever being a deliverer for the Israelites from their slavery. Now this is just how it is. This is life. You've got to learn to love it, right? He was now a shepherd. In one place, interestingly, it says in the book of Genesis that the Egyptians considered shepherds to be an abomination, Right? Like they did not like shepherds at all. Shepherds were on the bottom rung of the ladder of society. Moses, now look how far he's fallen. He's gone from the very top and now he's at the very bottom. If his old friends, you know the ones he grew up with, if they would see him now, they wouldn't even talk to him. They would want nothing to do with him. You know, Moses at this point, you've got to imagine, he's probably dirty, right? He lives outside. He's living in tents. He's following sheep and goats around the desert. He's sitting around a campfire every night. It's a far cry from the palaces of Egypt. But, but he says, hey, you know what? I can learn to live with this. It's not all that bad. I've got a wife. I've got a kid. This is my life now. It's kind of nice, you know, in a dirty hobo kind of way. So... Yet uh, we still get the sense that although Moses had learned to accept that this was his life now, we still get the sense that there was an ache in his soul. An ache in his soul because look at what he names his son. Stranger, foreigner, I don't belong here. That's what he's saying. 
In other words, he has this longing sense, I don't belong here. This is fine, it's a good enough life, but it's not what it's supposed to be. This isn't what I was meant for. I was meant for something else, for something more than this. Yeah, and it's, it's not bad. There are nice things here that I can enjoy, but this isn't it. This isn't it for me. Now, how many of you feel that ache in your soul? That ache that causes you to say, you know, there are a lot of great things in this life. There are a lot of things to enjoy, but I cannot shake this nagging feeling that there must be something more than this. There are things which I long for deeply, which cannot be found in this place. I ache for justice in the world, but I don't see it. I ache for sickness and death to be no more, but yet they're everywhere. I I ache for good to triumph over evil, but so many times it doesn't seem that that's what's happening. I ache for deep and fulfilling relationships, and yet I seem to always want something more. Uh, I, I... I long for fulfillment in my life that it just always seems to elude me. I long for life that lasts forever. I, I long for beauty and perfection. I long for truth and fulfillment. And I just, they seem to elude me even though, you know, there's a lot of nice things in this world. Do you feel that ache? I'll tell you what, I talk to a lot of people and everybody I talk to feels that ache. I feel that ache. How could you not feel that ache? In Romans chapter 8, Paul the Apostle explains it, and here's what he says. He said, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. See, every person feels this ache in their soul because we were made for perfection, but we're fallen. Our world is fallen. Our world is not what it should be, but even more than that, we are not who we should be. We're not even who we know that we should be. We know that we're not even who we know that we're supposed to be, but we long to get back to that place. We have this kind of ancestral memory of the way that things are meant to be, and we long to get there. We feel the ache. And you can suppress that ache. You can distract yourself from feeling the ache by keeping yourself nice and busy, nice and entertained with all kinds of shallow things. But you'll never get away from it. The best thing you can do is to acknowledge the ache and realize that what you need, what our world needs, is to be redeemed. So what is the solution? That brings us to our final point, and that's this. God's redeeming work. In the final three verses of the chapter, after hearing all this stuff about here, here's what happened to Moses, here's what was going on. In the final three verses of this chapter, it brings us back to God. It says, okay, well, so where was God during all of this? Well, here's where it was. It says in verse 23, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help and their cry for rescue came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Where was God in all of this? Here's where he was. He was right there the whole time. He was right there. He heard the cries. He heard the groans. He saw it all and he knew and he cared and he had a plan and he was at work the whole time in his timing for the salvation of his people because he had not forgotten the promise, the covenant that he had made to those people. And in the end, out of all the things that happened, even the bad things, all of the things are used for the working out of God's plan for salvation. 
Pharaoh's oppression of the Hebrews, Pharaoh's order that they kill all the baby boys, even Moses' boneheaded mistake. Those things did not ruin God's plan. Instead, just the opposite, God used those things to make Moses into the person that he would become, and he used those things to save Israel. What we see here is precisely what the Bible teaches, that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. You see, it's only from our perspective now, looking back, that we can see things clearly, right? Hindsight is twenty twenty. Now we can look back and we can see how each one of these little pieces fit together and God used them and redeemed them for his plan. But you, you got to know this. When they were going through it at that time, they didn't know that. They couldn't see it. They were probably wondering, God, how is this ever going to be good? How could this possibly be good? And what that means for us is this. There are probably things that God is doing in your life right now that you can't even see from your perspective, but he's doing them. One day you will see, or maybe you won't even see them in this lifetime. But one author put it this way. I thought this was important. He said, when you're in trouble, when you feel that God has abandoned you, what you need to do is, he says, you need to unmask the logic of your heart. Unmask the logic. And here's your logic in those times. First of all, you say, well, I can't see any good reason for this to happen. I can't understand how this could possibly be good. Therefore, here's the logic, therefore there can't be anything good in this. There cannot be any good reason for this to happen because I don't see a good reason for this to happen. And this author said, first of all, that's faulty logic. But, but secondly, it's kind of arrogant to say that because I don't see any good purpose in this, Therefore, there cannot be one. Through all these things, God was doing a work of redemption. He was taking bad things, messy things, even terrible things, and he used them all for good and for the accomplishing of his good purposes. And what an incredible hope that gives us. Let me tell you this, to know that our God is a redeemer, that he takes your messes, that he takes bad things, and he uses them for good. And that means that no matter what happens to you, it means that no matter what you've done in your life, God can take even those things and he can use even those things for good and for the accomplishing of his plans and purposes. You see, this is one of the great themes of the Bible, that God recycles, repurposes bad things and failed people. He repurposes them for good. If you look through the genealogy of Jesus himself, what you find is one person after another who made horrible mistakes. They were liars at some time in their life. They were immoral people. They committed crimes. And yet God didn't give up on them. Rather, he redeemed them. He even redeemed their mistakes. He brought beauty out of ashes and he brought salvation out of brokenness. And that is the exact thing that God wants to do in your life too. So I want you to think about this in closing. Who is the hero of this story? Who's the hero of this chapter? Well, it certainly wasn't Pharaoh. He's not a good guy. And, and it certainly can't be Moses because Moses had this great opportunity and he blew it. He's not a hero. Even at the end of the story, we see that well, he's just kind of resigned himself that he's not going to save Israel. He's just kind of given up on that. Is it Moses' parents? I mean, they're kind of the only ones who don't do anything wrong in this story. No, not even them. The hero of this story is God himself. God is the hero of this story. God is the one who directs the currents of the Nile to bring Moses to safety. God is the one who arranges for Moses to be raised up in the palaces of Egypt and trained in the best schools of Egypt. God is the one who redeems Moses' mistake. And God is the one who never gives up on Israel. He is still going to be faithful to his promise. He's still going to save them. See, at this point, Moses has kind of moved on. He's kind of given up. 
But God has not given up. God has not forgotten. God is still working to set his people free. And I'll tell you this, if your attention in this story only stays on Moses, then you've missed the entire point of this story. It's only if you allow yourself to see the one whom Moses foreshadows, the one to whom Moses points, it's only then that you've really understood this story. Now think about this. Does this story sound familiar at all? There's a king who decrees that all the male infants should be killed, but one child escapes, and he grows up to be the savior. And he leaves, though. One day he chooses to leave his throne, leave his privilege, leave the comfort and security of the palace, and he come and suffer with his own people. But his own people reject him. They say, we do not want you to rule over us. He's condemned to death. But yet through that death sentence, it is through that very sentence of death that he becomes the savior of the people. Of course, I'm talking about Jesus. Uh, do you think I'm stretching it a little bit? Stretching it, trying to, trying to make something out of, out of something that's not here? I'm not. Let me tell you why. Unless you understand who this story is pointing to, that it's ultimately pointing to Jesus, you won't really understand the story. I'm not stretching it. I'll tell you why. In Luke chapter 9, we read about a time when Jesus revealed his glory. We call it the transfiguration. Jesus goes up on this mountain. Some of his disciples are there. They see Jesus transfigured in glory. He reveals himself to be divine. And at that time, it says that Moses and Elijah appeared there with him in glory. And it says what they were talking about, Moses and Elijah and Jesus, what are they talking about? It says that they were discussing Jesus' quote, departure. They were referring to his death as his departure. Now here's what's interesting. That word departure, guess what word that is in the Greek language in which it was written? It's the word exodus. They were talking about Jesus' exodus. Jesus' death is referred to as his exodus. You see, Moses' exodus was great, but yet it was only limited to a group, one group of people at one particular time. It was temporal in nature. There still remains a need for a greater savior, a greater liberator, a greater exodus, an exodus of all people to set them free from sin and death for the rest of time. Moses became a liberator at risk of his own life. Jesus became a liberator for us, setting us free from sin at the cost of his own life by giving his life on the cross. And here's what Jesus' death on the cross means for you. It means that you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God loves you, that God cares about you, and that you are precious to him and important because he did not withhold anything from you. He gave all of himself to you. Secondly, it means this, that if you embrace him, if you embrace what he did for you, that you will be set free. You will be forgiven, justified, and your life will be redeemed. The story of Moses parallels what it means to be a Christian. No matter how perfect the setup you're given, all of us have blown it. We've all fallen short of who God wanted us to be. We're, we've sinned. We're not who we should be. And, yet, and because of that, we feel an ache in our souls. And yet God offers redemption to us through the one who is greater than Moses, the one whom Moses foreshadows and points us to, who's Jesus Christ. Will you receive the redemption he's offering you today and come to know him both as Savior and Lord? If you do that, you will be set free. Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are indeed our Lord and our Savior. Thank you, Lord, that you are the one who sets us free. Lord, not because of any of our merits, Lord, but because of your goodness. We see that at work here in this chapter in the life of Moses. 
And Lord, today we want to be those who say, yes, Lord. We don't, we don't want to be like the, the people of Israel who said, no, we, we do not want you to rule over us. We don't want you to be a prince and a judge over us. But Lord, we say just the opposite. Lord, we recognize you as our redeemer. And we ask that, Lord, you would be indeed just that. Prince and judge over us. Be the Lord of our lives. Be our savior. We receive you in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.